And welcome to episode 195 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky, and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. How was your week, Shane? Oh, more of the same, Chris. I'm I'm starting to lose my mind a little bit. Um, like we just can't observe it. No. It's terrible. It's been so terrible, and I, I'm getting so like so much cabin fever. Um, I, like I'm getting out of the house, which is good, but I just I really need to do some observing. I have not left the house in eight days. That's not a joke. Absolutely <laughs> true. Um, it's just been honestly, it's been really cold. And either it's been like just too cold to go out or it's been um, too windy and blizzardy. We've had like, I think three blizzards or something and a few squalls. So when it has been warm, there was like one day where it was warm ish last Sunday, but uh, we we were recording and then there's some other stuff I had to get done, you know, some Sunday, you know, is sort of get ready for the work week kind of day. And I just couldn't get my schedule around to get out that day. And that was like the only day I could have gone out if, uh, if I had wanted to. And then um, I thought I would go out in the evening. And by the time the evening rolled around, things were, were not good again. So uh, yeah, it's just been absolutely the worst weather. Like even like, I'm, I don't even care about the astronomy at this point. I just want to, you know, see the outside world. <laughs> well, or, or like a blue sky and not a yeah. cloudy sky would be kind of nice now tomorrow. And this has been, part of the issue. So tomorrow night, clear minus three degrees Celsius. That sounds ideal. Like I will certainly 175 kilometer. <laughs> it's like, or, that's what happened last one Monday. Or, or it will, you know, it's saying clear right now, but then tomorrow afternoon, it'll probably change to partly cloudy, which really means completely cloudy and no, and no observing, but anyway, well, the, hopefully not. And, and I mean, it's been, it's been dangerous. There's, there's been you know, there's, there's been some tragedies in, in this, in this terrible weather. It's been that bad there. There's been tragedies kind of leave it at that. But, um, I, I was sitting here on Monday and I was working, uh, later into the evening, uh, online with, uh, with our project manager. And, um, I get up to get a glass of water or something. And I looked out and I could see that my neighbor's windows were all weeping and they, like the water was coming out. So it had, it had warmed up and we had, a a problem with the uh, air exchanger and what, what we have here, you know, for those that are familiar is our houses are all sealed because of the cold. So you have to have an air exchanger and ours had broken down we had gotten it fixed. And I think either I had decided or the guy fixing it had mentioned that, you know, I should crack the windows and, and get the ice out of the windows when Warren's back up because we bought all these new windows uh, last year. And, uh, and so I did that and the weather wasn't too bad. And then uh, I left a couple of them open. And I was sitting here working and suddenly I could see like snowflakes flying around my office. So I decided I'd better shut the windows. So I went around and got my office window shut, one of the bedroom windows shut. And then the other bedroom window broke. <laughs> we had oh. a bl blizzard coming in. It had gone from plus three to minus three in the space of about 30 minutes. And, uh, and in the hour it took us to get the window fixed with the guy on the phone from the window company, um, I think it had gone from minus three to minus nine. <laughs> so, it had, and then it went all the way to minus 40. So uh, fortunately we did get the, the window back in the frame. <laughs> so it was bad, bad, bad news here. I was a little nervous. Hmm. Anyway, that was some excitement. Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. So I'm teaching my astronomy class. I'm guessing you didn't get any observing it at all. No, no, just, 
a little bit of visual. Um, saw Venus a couple times or at least once anyway, on my way to work in the morning, but uh, that was about it. Yeah. I looked at the moon and Jupiter through the window. I've been looking at Venus in the morning because I have pretty good horizons here. And um, yeah, I've been watching those, but uh, that that's it. That's it. Teaching my astronomy class, um, trying to give some people some astronomy uh, activities not to do, and but it's just been so brutal. They haven't been able to do anything. I did show them the the uh, the wood bino adapters that you made us. Remember those? Yeah, yeah. That was uh, it's a pretty simple adapter that like it's way better than the L brackets uh, that you can buy yeah. for binoculars. I've never been a huge fan of the L brackets. I've I've owned a few different ones. And I don't know, the, they never seem to be stable enough for me, or I can never get them tight enough. So then the binoculars are sort of rotating on that axis a little bit. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just don't love them. So, um, yeah, you, um, I, I remember quite a few years ago, you, you asked if I could build these things and they're based yeah. on the, uh, I think Burlaback sells one of these. Yeah. Burlaback makes them and I've seen other versions, but I really like what you did. So so first of all, like you were saying, Shane, the, the downside, I have an L bracket here and I have this bino adapter here, but the downside of the L bracket is that um, typically the center of gravity isn't in a good spot with those. So when you're mounting it, it's always trying to dip, you know, towards the objective end and uh, they're never really that well in balance. Yeah. And I find like you, you pretty much have to get like the IPD adjustment in like the binoculars set up before you put them on the L bracket, because if you try to make any adjustments when they're on the L bracket, yeah, I don't know. It just seems to get all clumsy yes, and yeah. I, I don't like it. And then the other, you know, um, yeah, the other thing is because of that, because they're kind of like shoved forward is that, you know, the IP sand is really close to like the, uh, tripod mount head or whatever it is you're using. So, you know, it, it makes it awkward to actually use. So what, so what Shane created this is like, so simple, very, very simple is, um, a long flat triangle. Uh, the peak of the triangle is maybe what an inch and a half or two inches high. And then it tapers down to about half, a, half an inch high. And it's maybe what about six or seven inches long across the base. And then on top, on the angled uh, sides, he put a little bit of rubber padding. And then underneath, he's got the one and a quarter uh, grommet and then uh, tacked in just a strap to, to strap them on. And what I like about it is you, you put the adapter on and then you can change binoculars super quick. It just has a little clip. I think I'll get it. It has a little clip. Mm -hmm. you, go, you can hear it. And uh and yeah, you can just clip a new pair of binoculars in and out just super, super fast. And then you can pull them back so you can actually balance it on the thing and uh, works on just like a regular pan head. I can put it on my parallelogram mount. Um, yeah, it has like a whole variety of different uh, uses. It's it's really, really awesome. And, and again, like a lot of different binoculars use different, um, you know, different L or different threads that you would put your L bracket on. And I didn't have, uh, you know, I didn't want to get like a whole bunch of different custom ones for, for a bunch of different binoculars. So it works perfect. Yeah. It, it, it's such a simple 
piece of kit and it's it's one of these rare things in astronomy that is actually fairly cheap too especially if you have uh like a saw <laughs> um <clears throat> chances are if you own some kind of saw you probably even have some scrap wood in your garage and a like a, a piece of two by four or a piece of four by four is really all you need to make this thing Mm. And uh, you do a couple of cuts and you're pretty much done. And it works really well for holding binoculars or for mounting binoculars. And like, it seems pretty accommodating to any, like, at least of the binoculars that I own. It's yeah. very accommodating for all of them. Like, it's not really like made for just one of my pairs of binoculars. It's, yeah. it's like binocular agnostic. It, it works well. Yeah, I like it because, and, and a lot of the time we're mounting it. Now, I don't know how how big a binocular I'd put on it, but um, I've mounted my, let's see, the ones that I've put on it are mostly like 7x35s up to 20x60s. Uh, and the 20x60s I have are fairly light. And I think that's that's sort of the the best range for a, for a piece of kit like this. But it, it's super nice because um, like I was at one night, I was swapping between like binoculars, which you often wouldn't do once you get them mounted up like that. It would just be such a pain to unthread the screw and pull them off and keep it balanced. Whereas this just clip, and then you just have your other pair of binoculars there. So you hold the, the parallelogram mount down and then you, you know, sort of uh, carefully whip one off, put the other one in, snap it back on, and you're off to the races with a completely different set of, but it's almost, it's easier than changing an eyepiece almost. It's sweet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And if anybody is interested, like maybe you don't have a saw or you don't want to make your own, uh, Burlaback sells these for 39 euros. Yeah. Um, and it's it, on their website, it's called binoculars support. Um, yeah. okay. so you can see what it looks like there. Um, and when you see it again, if, if you, uh, if you have the right tools, it's a pretty simple thing to, to just make yourself. Yeah. Yeah, really nice. Um, what else is going on? Oh, I submitted uh, the article to the Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada on the actual astronomy podcast. Sent that to you. Uh, you had to read through. Hopefully, it was to your liking. Yeah, yeah, it was good. I'm uh, I'm excited to 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 maybe hear some other feedback once it's published. Yeah, so the journal is uh, freely uh, available in in the digital format. Somebody had written me and said that. I guess they had read one of my articles in the observer's handbook and they said they hadn't read anything else by me. I'm like, well, it's all free and available on the internet. And if people want to read, I, I, I think we'd put out it's every other month is the journal. And usually they miss one of my articles. So I get about five out of the six editions a year, but I've been writing in it for about three years now, something like that anyway. And you can go to rasc.ca slash node slash four seven zero five four or if you glue google <laughs> we're going to start googling things now if you google um rasc journal uh then it will it will take you to the page but you have to kind of click around there's a there's a search interface you can go through and uh and search all the past uh, articles yeah yeah there's a lot of good information in those journals i don't read i don't read them usually from beginning to end but um Usually there's at least a couple of articles in there that I find quite interesting and, and uh, enjoy reading it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think most people do. I think like there's just a handful of people that kind of, I get the the printed version and honestly, I don't read it as as dedicated as I should. I just, you know, I have so many other things on, on the go with astronomy, uh, but uh, you know, it is, it is a good resource and I enjoy just sort of picking them up when, uh, you know, when I get them and 
flipping through and, and reading a few articles. But if, if people are interested on, on some other meanderings, and I don't know that any of the topics that I've written in there have been topics we've done on the show. So, I mean, if people are just kind of interested in some of the other stuff that uh, we've been up to, because usually I do include Shane and Mike's observations in there, that's another source and it's free. So uh, you don't have to buy or subscribe or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, it usually covers a fairly wide spectrum of topics too. So you can usually find something of interest. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of uh, good stuff in there. Um, have some, some emails here, Shane. Don't know if you have anything to add before we dive into some, some listener emails. Uh, not really. Um, I did, I did receive that 18 millimeter uh, TMB super mono. Oh um, yeah. So it's arrived, but I've not had any opportunity to use it unless I just want to look at clouds or I don't know, telephone <laughs> poles maybe. Um, so yeah, it's here. Uh, but It'll have to wait a little longer until I use it. And uh, I'm yeah. still waiting for that Bino viewer to arrive again, hoping this week, but things coming overseas, uh, you just never really know. It can sometimes take time to clear customs and all sorts of other hoops. So, yeah, yeah, no, I hear, I hear that. Like I said, I was trying to buy a inexpensive telescope today and disappointed I didn't get, I set a limit and telescope went beyond the limit even by a few dollars and i was like i'm out because kind of looking for something that's a little a little less expensive and might uh, might call a few things from the herd maybe and and up my my ante a, a little bit i i don't know but uh, i think i have to keep purchases to to a bare minimum until we get uh some of the other stuff we need to get done this year done so yeah with uh with that we've we've had some uh some emails from folks and uh just sort of looking at a at a couple things, we we had an email here from from Peter, and he's the person who bought the AstroTech ED70 from uh, Astronomics there, and he he bought I think he bought it in the fall, and then I, I was really curious about it, and we we'd had some communication, and I think I'd looked at a few of the Astronomics telescopes over the years, like at star parties and and stuff, always pretty good, um, and so he's just kind of filling us in on some of the details and. And I should say, I probably got some of the details wrong because um, he had sent some photos and I think I might've made an assumption here. So I'm just going to read this. Okay. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So uh, Peter writes, hi, Shane and Chris, thanks for the mention today. Sorry, your weather is so awful. Thank you. <laughs> it is terrible. Okay. So he said, unfortunately, AT70ED does not come with a case. So the AT70ED is a uh, 70 millimeter refractor with ED glass. So it's, uh, it's a parchromatic. So that means it's, it's mostly color-free and it's only $2.99. Um, so you said what I showed you was a Pelican uh, knockoff that he bought from Harbor Freight for about 30 bucks. And he also bought the $140 uh, reducer flattener um, that they recommend for astrophotography. So the total cost for him was about 440 once he kind of put together his astrophotography um, setup uh, for this telescope. And then he writes, uh, I have not shot pictures without the reducer flattener, and but we know that the straight visuals from the scope are excellent. Yeah, they, they are really good scopes and really good, I think, uh, getting started at astrophotography telescopes. And he goes on to write, they also have the AT60ED for $400 plus another $140 for the reducer flattener. And this is a full apochromatic, uh, apparently, and the reviews are excellent. I expect I'll be tempted to get one later in the year. And he says, I'm afraid I've been captivated by these small light refractors 
Uh, all the best, Peter. And uh, yeah, so I wrote him back and I said, <laughs> he said, and I guess like I didn't dive into the astronomics website, but I'm like, how come the AT60 ED is uh, $101 more than the AT70? And he said that uh, I guess the AT60 uses lanthanum glass, which is a more expensive glass that uh, I know a lot of the big manufacturers like Teleview and uh, and Vixen use in their equipment. So uh, that's why the 60 is uh, is more expensive. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how much you you would probably see some better like uh, red color correction uh, in the field with that. So that that's that's what I'm gathering. Any comments in this email, Shane? Yeah. So, so the, uh, the little 60 uses, uh, so there's two elements. It's a doublet. Um, one, one of the elements is lanthanum and it looks like, I think the other element is FPL 53. Um, so it is, it is like, I guess what would be considered a higher end glass, mm. both, both of those than just a standard ED refractor. Mm. Um, like you said, the, the big difference, if there is a difference, um, it's probably actually not that big, but it, it no. might be just a little bit in the color correction, um, that, that you see. Um, I don't know, I guess that would be an interesting comparison though, would be to have like, uh, like an FPL 53 or, you know, lanthanum versus, I don't know, what would it be? FPL 51 maybe is in the regular ED. That would be my yeah. guess. FPL 51 is shot, C-H-O-T-T. That's the shot glass. And that's the same glass that was used, I think, in the Voyager missions. I could have that wrong. Actually, that FPL 51 is very well regarded too. Oh, yeah. I don't even know if you can get that anymore. Um, I don't I'm know. not sure. I, I'm not much of a glass expert. I should really just close my lips right now on this stuff. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, your, your license plate doesn't say glass man or anything like no, that. No, no, no. I'm far from that level to make of a, uh, accreditation <laughs> to make it to make an obscure Seinfeld reference. Um, yeah. And what was funny about this is, as Peter and I have been having this conversation, um, the great uh, reviewer, Ed Ting, who is a, a great uh, YouTube channel now and has been around for, for a long time in the amateur community doing telescope reviews. Um, he says that the AT70 ED is also um, among his most highly recommended um, you know, sort of getting started in, in, uh, apochromatic telescope, um, you know, realms or, or whatever. It's basically, um, among the most affordable, high quality little telescopes you can get. So, yeah, I mean, I have one of the earlier, um, William optics, which I think is somewhat similar to this. And, uh, that that's what I bought to kind of get into this realm. And, uh, it didn't cost $299. It costs a lot more than that. And, and again, one of the reasons why I like this telescope so much is the AT70 um, ED is, is going to give you pretty darn good color correction and uh, nice sharp stars. It's small, it's fast, and it's got a two-inch focuser and probably would, uh, would outpunch my um, ST80 Acromat, um, which once I fitted a two-inch focuser on that, um, came out to more than the AT70. So... I think that as far as bang for buck goes, when it comes to little refractors, it's gonna be pretty tough to beat the the AT70. And I think that the, I think that possibly the ST80s often run a little bit lighter than 80 millimeters in uh, in aperture. Anyway, I think they, they end up getting stopped down one way or another inside. Uh, so you, you might not even get the full 80 millimeters there, whereas the AT70s you're getting a full 70 and it's uh, apochromatic or 
or maybe some people might say it's semi. I, I haven't looked through one of these newer ones, but uh, I'm assuming they're pretty close to color free. So anyway, that, that's they're they're pretty cool scopes. Anyway, yeah, yeah, I think it's a, a great candidate for like a, a strong recommendation for first scope or, or uh, like not even first scope, but if anybody wants just a nice portable refractor, hard to beat. Yeah. I think Peter said he might mention us to, to astronomics, which, which would be cool. I bought lots from them over the years. I was bought some eyepieces from them last year. They have a nice um, sort of entry level series called the paradigms, I think, or it's something like that. I think they're like an astro tech paradigm. I think astro tech is their like house brand. And I bought them for my nephew, but I did try them out before I sent them. And uh, I think they're like a 55 or 58 degree uh, field of view eyepiece. And they were, they were really nice. And I think they were like 40 bucks each American or something. They, they were a lot for what you get. And I remember trying those out thinking, oh, I wish they had stuff like this when I was getting into the, I was going to say sport, but getting into the hobby of astronomy. So, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's just so much good stuff now. It, uh, it, it it's really, it's awesome, right? It, it makes uh, the accessibility into the hobby so much greater. Yeah. Oh, and Astronomic, we're not sponsored by them or anything. They're just one of the suppliers that I personally buy from and have been happy with. And I'm, I'm just happy to, to mention it to people because they're often, people are often wondering like where to go and who to buy from. And how I found out about them is they're actually the sponsors of uh, Cloudy Nights mm-hmm. Astronomy Forums, which uh, we all know and love, eh? Absolutely. And I think if you're a Cloudy Nights member, you get a, a small discount for shopping there as well, like 5% off or something like that. Yeah, that's and that's uh, what I was doing last year when I was buying uh, some gear for my for my nephew. Once once you factored in, I think that their prices were actually a little less expensive anyway. And then once you factored in the discount and uh, they have pretty good uh, shipping to Canada, you know, and some U.S. retailers won't ship to Canada, or it's they, they don't use good shipping methods. But Astronomics does, as as do the other ones that I deal with, and uh, yeah, I was pretty impressed. But I'm on their mailing list, though, so it was sort of top of mind that um, right at the same time I'm communicating with Peter on this, I got an email saying that they have a bunch of hundred degree um, branded eyepieces in stock as well. So they've they've got a nine, a, a seven, a thirteen, and a twenty millimeter hundred degree, and I think think they're probably pretty similar to some of the other ones that are put out there these days. But uh, but they were in stock this week, so they they had sent this note out saying that their stock of hundred degree eyepieces had arrived. So kind of thought that was pretty neat too. Yeah, yeah, that is cool. Yeah, I wouldn't mind trying one. They've got a four millimeter and twenty eight millimeter in stock too. Those are anyway. I I you know I always think you know it would be cool if we did have a store sponsors. I would love just to try this gear out and give it away. <laughs> It's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I always think that would be really neat. So, oh, you know, one can dream. <laughs> yeah, one could. But yeah, like I have no like real compunction to have like a massive eyepiece collection. I, I really probably got all the eyepieces I want. But but uh, and because I have astigmatism sometimes, like like I'd love to go to a star party and look through a lot of these different 100 degree and 82 degree eyepieces. But like I wouldn't buy them, but I just want to look through them. Right. And uh, and like that's a set I haven't looked through. So I would love well, to. But anyway. Well, I'm, I've been sort of on the fence a little bit with the Nikon HWs. Um, and, and what scares me or keeps me away is, is the eye relief. And I read a number of reports that say, oh, it's, it's fine with eyeglasses. But, you know, when you're spending that kind of money, like I, I would like to try before I buy. And, and some of those eyepieces, unless you're at a large star party, you just may not be able to find somebody that has them because they are 
you know, expensive, which means not everybody has them. And, and, uh, it's a little harder to, to find, you know, somebody in the field that's actually using them. So anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm uh, crying about, uh, you know, problems that aren't really problems. So. Yeah. <laughs> we all said an email from, uh, from Larry, I guess you, you and Larry were talking, I'll, I'll read this and then maybe you can talk a little bit about it. Yeah. I love this uh, one. This is good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, did you want to read it? Go ahead. Oh, it uh, doesn't matter. Sure. I'll, uh, uh, dear Chris and Shane, uh, hope you guys have gotten out, uh, to do some observing. Uh, it's been mostly cold here uh, for the past week. So the only observing I've done is with my eyes or binos on short evening walks. Uh, really enjoy this though, as it's helping me to learn the sky better. Uh, so I have a question for you guys, and I thought it might also be something worth talking about sometime on the podcast. Um, a little bit ago, I put a post up on cloudy nights asking for suggestions for open clusters, uh, that would be good in a more light polluted sky. Um, I was surprised that there were so many good responses. Uh, one of the posters suggested that a good way to observe open clusters in urban skies is with really high magnification. Uh, so using like 140 to 175 power. Um, and then this uh, is done in order to darken the background sky, uh, increase the contrast and bring out the dimmer members of the cluster. Uh, this all made sense to me. And the poster is a very experienced observer. I was wondering if either of you have tried this observing technique and if you had, what were the results? Um, so yeah, I've, uh, I've definitely used that technique, um, in the city and it's, I find it a lot more noticeable, like under light polluted skies. Uh, and what's noticeable is that darkening effect of the background and the higher the magnification, the blacker the sky becomes. And, um, really this is just a result of shrinking the exit pupil and not as much light is, is hitting your eye. Therefore things are dimmer. Um, What's key about this though, is it's proportionately dimming everything that you're looking at. Um, so if you're looking for faint objects, they'll become even dimmer, uh, because there's just not as much light coming through your optical system. Um, so it's sort of a balance, you know, of, of increasing the power to, to kind of darken the background sky up enough, which makes other things pop out sometimes, but also not using too high of a magnification or, or shrinking that exit people too much. Uh, to reduce some of the light for faint objects that you might be interested in or faint aspects of that object you're interested in. Do you have uh, any comments on that, Chris? Yeah. And, and I think when I replied to Larry, I mentioned this as much, um, you know, because like where, where I live is so like where, where I live couldn't have better horizons, like for observing planets, almost like, I mean, I have like really great horizons in almost every direction, like, except kind of where my house is and where my next door neighbor's house is like sort of due South like, except for absolutely hundred percent due South, um, I, I, you know, I can get everything. And then, uh, you know, if, if things are in due South, I can, I can typically get it just before it passes the meridian, um, from the backyard and then go to my, my front driveway and then kind of get it as it, as it whips around. So it's not too bad. Um, but as far as dark sky goes, like, it's just, I find it too frustrating because, you know, and unlike Larry, you know, I talked about this is like, I can just pack my stuff up about as long as it takes me to drag it around the back of the house, even before I set it up is how long it takes me to pack up. And in 15 minutes, I can be under like a really decent portal for, or slightly better sky. And, uh, and so it's really difficult for me to say, okay, well, I'm just going to observe open clusters from the yard. Cause if I want to observe, I'm like, well, I'll drag my stuff. But I did say this. And that's that even when I, you know, mostly observe clusters from darker skies, um, 
typically I'm running up to 185 power in my four inch. So I'll, you know, of course, uh, you know, I've got finder eye pieces and that, um, running about, uh, whatever it is like 18 or 20 power, give or take. And then what I'm doing is, uh, is just like running through a variety of different magnifications. Mostly I've been using my, uh, my 12 and a half doctor with some Barlow's. So I have, uh, a 1.6, a 2.1 and a 3.2 Barlow. So, um, not to kind of break down all the magnifications, people can do the math themselves. It's got a 740 millimeter focal length. So, you know, I'm going right from like 20 power all the way up to 185, like depending on the object, but, but the bigger objects, of course, you know, I find like you can start to lose the context, um, as that power runs up, but for smaller clusters. Yeah, for sure. Like when I was, um, you know, doing some other stuff, uh, last spring, you know, I was, uh, you know, use, using those high powers and, and observing some of the smaller clusters there was, uh, yeah, that, that, that's definitely my technique. And I know the technique of other people that as well, you know, more experienced observers uh, are where, I've, you know, I've obtained that information from. So it does make a lot of sense for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, uh, and then Bill wrote an update on the H beta filters uh, that mm-hmm. he attached to his 15 by 70 binoculars. And I, I think we touched on this last week, the initial email. So what's the update here, Chris? Yeah. So Bill wrote an update. What he's doing is he's made these, um, they're, they're just like, uh, cardboard circles, just like if you cut a piece of cardboard box up and then kind of wrap them around the filters and trim them really short, um, and, and then what he's done is sort of fitted them into the eye cups of his 15 by 70 binoculars, which are just like the standard 15 by 70 binoculars most people have. Um, and then, he, then he's made some observations with them. So the first email we had, which was a week or so ago now, um, he was saying that, that he had just done this uh, on kind of a crappy rainy night and then um, decided that uh, he would try it out. And then, uh, so this is the report of him, him trying it out. And I, I think, I think, and don't want to take credit where credit isn't due, but I think we kind of spurred him on to do that. So Bill writes, so I was out splitting next year's firewood and listening to the latest podcast and heard you guys talking about my bino filters and realized I hadn't reported back. <laughs> they worked great. Last <laughs> Thursday, I had a chance to try them out. I uh, went out at Pearson College and I've been out at Pearson College with Bill on a rainy night. Um, the results were as good as I'd hoped. Uh, he was able, he says, uh, Barnard's loop, especially the Northern section was obvious. I see 434, which is the, um, nebula that extends down from Zeta Orionis, which is where the horse head is. Anyway, he says, I see 434 also stood out and, uh, and, and he put the binoculars on a tripod and said, I really believe B33 might've been detectable, although like 15 power, 70 millimeter plus or minus aperture. Yeah, it might be, might be possible. And he said, then I swung around to Auriga and looked uh, for the flaming star. And uh, he said it was uh, a recently defined seven. So I'm guessing like a, like a number seven. And there was also a hint of IC 410. Um, he says the, uh, in Orion, the M4243 region was alive with glow, uh, but he forgot to give a look for the California nebula. And he continues to say, what I did notice was a glow around the edge, which I attribute to the cardboard ring. So I flocked it. And that was the thing that I kind of had been a little bit concerned about with putting the filters um, on the, on the, you know, sort of observer side of the eyepiece instead of in the, in the light path is that you can get some of, some of this reflection, but still usable. And so he's, he's kind of flocking down and painted the rest flat black. So I think he's going to reduce that to a minimum. 
And then he said, next go around, uh, the glow had gone away. So I take this as a win. As you can see, the filter is set deep inside the cell. I was hoping to create an eyepiece effect. They fit nice and snug inside the rubber eye cups. Um, so really good. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for uh, sending us the update. I think that's uh, that's super cool and certainly uh, you know something I've I've experimented with a little bit in the past. But I've put them over the the objective side, like using two inch um, filters. And I always thought it'd be cool if I could get like three inch filters and then um, put them over the objective side of of some larger binoculars. Figured a way to dismantle binoculars and get them in the middle, but things things get so expensive at those price points that. Uh, better off just buying a dedicated pair of uh, binoculars you can switch eyepieces in. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. Cool. Any comments on that? You going to do it? Nope, probably not. Um, <laughs> but I think it's awesome. Um, I, I just, uh, I don't know. I, I like my binoculars. Um, I, I don't know. I, I guess uh, part, part of the issue too, is I, I would have to then buy, you know, uh, additional filters to double up and, mm. And maybe one day, but that's not too high on my list right now. Yeah. Yeah. I've played around with it a little bit. One thing I had tried to do, and I had experimented with this, um, this far is I had a pair of those binoculars. Um, and one thing I had done was I peeled off the, uh, the rubber eye cups and they, they have like just the standard plastic over the eye pieces. And then it kind of folds back and it's all pretty flush. And what I did is just, just very carefully work, work them off because, you know, although they're glued on, they're, they're rubber and they don't have to be. So it's sort of like, you know, I don't know when they were building them, if they were just trying to figure out how to use more glue when they made them or what. But anyway, the, the glue kind of easily let go. And, uh, and I pulled one of them off and uh, I took a filter and I got the glass out of the filter. And then I simply um, put the filter over the eyepiece and after I pulled the rubber off and then I put the rubber back on. So then I just had the filter right against the glass basically. And I thought that would be a way to do it because then you could still use your glasses and there'd be some rubber there. And so you're, you're not um, as likely to, to scratch the filter. Um, and I always thought that would be a great direction to go in, but, but, uh, but again, you're, you know, you're, you're dismantling a lot of stuff there and uh, your chances of having, you know, a dire accident with, with the filters and messing them up and they're not inexpensive is, is fairly high, but I thought that could be a way to do it as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty involved. Um, yeah. Not for the faint of heart, I guess. Yeah. So I haven't, you know, but I have thought quite a bit, you know, when I read Bill's report there, I think, you know, I know there's, there's been uh, several versions of like 70 millimeter binoculars over the years that you can buy that you can sort of swap in your own eyepieces. And I thought, Ooh, that would be, that would be uh nirvana when it comes to doing something like this because then you would really have the best of all worlds but but again i've never been a super big fan of the angled binoculars as much as i want to like them um they haven't really done it for me in the field it's it's more like they look cool and and the idea of them really appeals to me but once i once i use them a few times um they just didn't didn't really do it for me the way that i thought they would so have you ever used angled binoculars like 90 degree or 45 degree binoculars uh, yes, yes, I have. Um, but like more, more like the touristy spotting scopes. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not, um, like they're okay during the daytime. I've never used them at night, I guess though is, yeah. is a better answer to the question. Yeah. Cause like, unlike with like a binoviewer where you're looking at a planet and a binoviewer is kind of like in a way, like just 
in my mind anyway, like a, like a fancy or different way to, to view eyepieces, just like you, you might have different eyepieces to view um, an object, but, uh, but with the angled binoculars, I found that like, cause you're not looking straight through them. And I think that when you're using a binocular, one of the huge advantages it's, and I don't know whether it's just me or what, but I think there's something like in your vestibular system, like your, the stabilizing system that is the, the, the parts between like your, um, your ears and your eyes and your brain, like this whole thing that tells you like which way is up and everything, because like, you're just looking straight through, I think in a way that's like part of the binocular experience. And that, um, when I went to 45 and 90 degree, uh, and I lost that, um, you, you still get all the benefits of the binocular experience, but, but you lose that kind of straight throughness, you know, that, uh, that makes it so easy to point and aim them. Eh? Hmm. I, I, I will say like, just with the bino viewer experience that I have, there's, um, I, have you ever gone snorkeling Chris, like in water? <laughs> as opposed to like the beer vat I tried once. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, quite a few yeah. times. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but whenever I go snorkeling for the first time and I dip my head underwater, it's almost like I start to hyperventilate because it's not, my brain doesn't calculate that I should be able to breathe underwater, but I can't because I have the snorkel. Yeah. Yeah. And then once I kind of calm myself down, breathing becomes normal and it just, it you know, it's not an issue anymore. And yeah. I kind of like, I've I felt like, a similar experience with my bino viewer, not impacting my breathing, but you're, when I'm at the telescope, my brain believes that I should be looking with one eye, you know, and because that's how I've done it for pretty much my entire life. Yeah. And when I'm using two eyes in that orientation, it, it's almost, I think, confusing to my brain. And it takes me a few minutes at the eyepiece with the bino viewer Mm -hmm. um, to sort of like calm down my vision and, you know, just relax my eyes to take in the view with two eyes and to merge the images and all of that fun stuff. And, um, you know, maybe that's part of it, right. Is just cause it is sort of abnormal to, to be looking that way. We're just not used to it. Yeah. And the other thing I found in the, in the sense I've looked through the APM 100 millimeter, I think there were EDs. They're a really good pair anyway. And I've looked through the Kawa 82 fluorides. So these are among, I think the better ones, like, and, uh, and, and sort of was out with them for extended periods. And it was sort of like the same thing where, where you end up manipulating your body more than, more than the binocular, which I found ergonomically really challenging as well, because um, they were always on like fixed tripods, like you couldn't raise and lower them. So like a, like a game when you just have your handheld binoculars, um, you know, like you're able just to kind of see where you can look without really thinking about how you're, how you're situated. But with those ones, um, I just found like the angles were never very comfortable or whatever. And then it just seemed like you were kind of hunched over them quite a bit. And so you're, you're sort of looking down and then they're pointed up and then it's sort of hard to, to navigate a, a little bit. And yeah, it's just, a lot of futz factor too. Like I really wish they would be more like on a parallelogram mount. That's why I always thought it'd be cool if I could get a pair that was small and light enough that I could put on my um, parallelogram mount, which I, I think could hold up to six pounds, something like that. Uh, I feel like that would be, that would be good if I could find a small enough pair, but I, I think that's about, um, yeah, that that's about the only way I would, I think I would want to uh, use them, but yeah, maybe someday if I can kind of cobble together something out of some Borg parts, might try something like that. I feel like that would be cool. I feel like that would be really cool, but then it's so small, right. That, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. like, you know, 
you're basically putting together something that is that is so tiny at that point that just getting a really good pair of 10 by 50s that you can just sort of handhold or or you know with minimal support starts to make more sense so then you're like well what have, what have I accomplished by by you know spending an a lot like an exorbitant amount of money just to get a binocular that's small and light enough I can put on a parallelogram mount which there's many many versions of this already available uh you know that, that I could get and use so yeah it's it's yeah, it becomes like sort of the strange kind of, you know, net Netherland of not really worth it to do in the size that I would need to do it in. So yeah, it's never gotten done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. So I think we had a few other emails uh, that came in as well, didn't we? Yeah, we did. I'm not going to dive too, too far in. Uh, Chef wrote us on the, of course, on the barbecuing bit. We've mm-hmm. seen a lot of emails on, on the barbecuing. Um I think we should do an episode in the summer on that. Um, Felipe sent a bit of an update on his uh, go-to project he was talking about. I think he's found somebody relatively nearby that's also working on a go-to project. That person has a 10-inch. I think they're looking to sell it. And uh, anyway, I think I, I think I owe him an email on that. Sometimes, you, usually I'm pretty good. I think I end up replying to like 90% of the emails. But um, sometimes I get an email open. I start thinking about what I'm going to reply. And then just life happens. Something happens. And then... Um, my apologies if I ever do that to people. Um, and our friend Kathleen, um, we had in the show like about a year and a half ago or something like that. Anyway, Kathleen wrote and uh, she really liked the Astronomy Friends episode, which is appropriate because she's an astronomy friend of ours. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so that was great. So hopefully we can meet up with her uh, this summer. Haven't uh, we didn't get to observe with her last year because of because of the pan- pandemic one and then then when we were supposed to meet up i think it was i think two years ago it was smoky and the weather was looking bad and she went observing and we didn't go and it was bad and then then last year the first time it was pandemic and the second time it was her that made the call not to go um mike and i went we observed and she didn't come and I think we end up with a bad night and a good night or something like that. So it was, yeah. it was all yeah. right. So. Yeah. Cause we were having smoke issues again and it was looking a little dicey as to whether or not it would be worthwhile. Yeah. You didn't come either. And yep. uh, yeah, but one of the nights was really good. Yeah. We had one really good night, one night that was, that was mediocre, but uh, anyway, that's, that's the way it goes. Uh, and then Wade wrote, I heard like Wade's email, Wade's in Australia, and he wrote uh, a detailed observing report on his uh, eggs, people, and astigmatism. Mm-hmm. Um, did a bit of an experiment there and, and had a bit of a show idea out of it. Um, yeah, what did you think about that, Shane? Yeah, I thought it was a, a very interesting email. And it was really, the premise of the email was talking about um, different exit pupils uh, and how it impacts or how it, uh, uh, I don't know, coexists with astigmatism in our eyes. Mm. Um, you know, folks that read about this stuff on cloudy nights have probably come across some posts where people state, if I use like a, a, a lower focal length eyepiece, um, some, you know, meaning high magnification, small exit pupil, uh, some people report that they no longer see the effects of the astigmatism that's in their eye. Therefore, they can observe without wearing uh, corrective eyeglasses and not have any uh, degradation in the view because um, this this small exit pupil uh, doesn't expose the astigmatism in their eye. But um, uh, it's probably, I don't know, Chris, I, that 
I think that topic deserves more than just a, a couple minutes on it. Uh, we might we might be able to turn that into an entire episode. I, I think so. I kind of want to do that one right. And I feel like, although mm-hmm. it's something that I've thought a lot about, I'm not sure if if we, uh, maybe we should look and see if we can find somebody who's a little bit more of an expert on it. Because I feel like, I feel like I really haven't gone down the rabbit hole in that other than to run my own experiments, which um, basically what I found for myself is that, um, you know, no matter what exit pupil I'm using, I can detect deterioration in the image quality due to my astigmatism. If I take my glasses off such that, uh, you know, um, at like, you know, a six to seven millimeter exit pupil, I almost feel like the images, well, the images to me anyway, unacceptable. So I absolutely need to have eyepieces that I can use my glasses with. And then, um, even once I get up to like, uh, under a millimeter exit pupil, like at 0.7 or 0.75 millimeter exit pupils, and even using like really good, uh, eyepieces, like when I use my uh, Pentax 5.1 XO, which is among the best, uh, low glass planetary eyepieces, I, I notice, um, a big difference. Um, I still notice a big difference. It's worth having the eyepiece. Um, and with that eyepiece, I can kind of arrange myself such that I, I can see some of the image when the scope is tracking with the, uh, with that eyepiece in, but I, I don't use it as much as, as I would, if I could use it without, uh, without eyeglasses, but, uh, still, still kind of worth having in, in the kit. But yeah, I, I notice it way down. I think, I think Wade was saying he notices it kind of less, uh, the smaller the eggs people gets. And I generally notice that with people and, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think that it'd be nice to have somebody on that really has gone down the rabbit hole on it or, or somebody who's a bit of a, of a, you know, uh, an eye expert or something like that. So anyway, yeah. do some research there. Yeah. Cause, cause one of the things you and I talk about all of the time are, is like the quality of your optical path. So we talk a lot about, you know, the quality of the telescope, quality of the eyepiece. And if you're using a telescope that requires a diagonal, you know, that's part of it too. One thing we really don't talk a lot about is, is that your eye is a part of that optical path and, um, you know, your eyes change as you age, which introduces a a whole bunch of other variables, but even determining like if your left eye or your right eye is better for observing and then making sure you use that eye. Like I think instinctively we're all like, we have a dominant eye that we open up for, for telescope observing, but maybe your other eye is better, you know, and, and that'll improve your views. So, uh, yeah, I would love to do an episode on this one. Yeah. It would be cool to kind of, to, to really think on it. And I know we have a few show ideas like this. That I really like the idea. I just really want to do it properly. Um, like for example, maybe we'd even get into like picking out eyeglasses. Like I know, um, you know, like if I just go to the, you know, eyeglass, uh, place at the uh, optometrist and just get them to fire in any old pair like I did um, on one occasion because uh, for whatever reason I, I decided I just wasn't going to spend the extra money and I went up and they just fired in a pair of lenses and I drove home and I, I had to call them the next day I'm like I can't use these lenses like they had so much chromatic aberration like everything was either outlined in red or outlined in blue to me right but clearly like thousands and thousands of people are getting these because they're, they're the most generic lens that's produced. They told me, um, you know, and these lenses are all produced in only like one or two factories, like here in Canada anyway, I think. And, you know, I think they supply all of North America just about and these. These are the ones that the majority of people get, but to my eye, 
and for whatever reason, maybe just more sensitive to secondary color than most, but I just couldn't stand it. It was like, it was like looking at Venus through like the worst achromatic lens I've ever looked through, like, except everything was like that, right? I was like, I can't stand it. It was just like, you know, distorting the whole world, you know? Oh, well. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of different things and, and maybe it's just because from looking through like quality glass over the years, you know, you just, you're, you get sensitive to seeing secondary color. And, uh, so I don't know, I don't know what happened there, but, uh, yeah, certainly, uh, certainly could get down a rabbit hole. I got to get new glasses anyway. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll do some more research and do some thinking about that as I'm, as I'm going down that, uh, that path too. And, yeah, not really happy on the new lenses. Like I got lenses a couple of years ago and they've gotten really scratched up and I'm fairly careful and not so happy with that. That's actually, I think half the reason why I need new lenses is they're just scratched in the, in the center and that's no good. Yeah. Yeah. That can play into it too. Yeah. I did get a Zeiss pair of glasses once and uh, I got to say, I might do that again. I was very happy with those. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. They make good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's that's it. I think that's what uh, what we'll stick with for this episode. I can't really talk today. <laughs> that's a good sign to wrap yeah. things up. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to go home and Google that. Um, do you have anything to add, Shane? Uh, no, that's it. All right. Well, I'm going to sign off here and close with uh, thanks, Shane. Thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs> Please like and subscribe. That really helps the algorithms. And we're always excited to get your observing reports to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>